Can you open up with me to Mark chapter 11, everybody? And uh, we are going to be continuing our series. I'm also just waiting on my notes to, uh, uh, to, to come up. You don't, you don't want to see me preach without notes. We'll be here until the Lord comes back. <clears throat> we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be reading from verse 12 through to verse 25. What we're going to see in, in this section is a, a, a very, very significant moment. In fact, I'll read in just a moment what Mark, uh, no, sorry, not Mark, John MacArthur says of this passage, he's a, a trusted expositor and preacher from over in America. I'm sure many of you have benefited from his ministry. I'm going to read a, a quote that he says about this text because it is just so significant. What we've, we've got here is this transition into the third third of Mark, right? We, we've already looked at his, his first third that Mark uh, writes down is, is mass miracles, preaching to the crowds, traveling through mostly uh, uh, Galilee up in the north. Uh, and, and then we took that, that middle section of a few chapters, basically end of chapter 8 until end of chapter 10, and we saw that Jesus focused in on the 12 disciples, foretelling his crucifixion and telling them messages and, and lessons about uh, what the kingdom of God would be like, that we should welcome the little ones in our midst, right? That was, that was a part of what he said. Hey, Bao. Uh, and then, and then uh, what we see now is this, we transitioned last week. Jesus is on his road to the cross, and he rode that donkey into Jerusalem, into the holy city of the kings. He went in, he looked around, he went back out to the town of Bethany. And what we see today is him go in and curse that city for its false religion. This is what John MacArthur says. Before us today is a monumental day in redemptive history, the history of the world, God's history. It's a serious day. And it is a profound day because it is on this day that our Lord Jesus pronounces a curse on the temple in Jerusalem. That curse extended beyond just the temple to the leadership, the religious leadership of Israel, and therefore encompassing Israel's religion and all who are a part of it, who essentially make up the whole nation. It is in effect, therefore, a curse on the nation. The covenant, chosen, blessed people of God are here, curse. What we've been seeing is that Jesus is, just like every other prophet of the Old Testament, he is a covenant lawyer, meaning he comes to God's people into the city. He reads from the book of the covenant, which is the Old Testament scrolls. He reads their requirements. He condemns them for their sin against it. And then he, he declares God's blessings to those who repent and make good on the covenant and he declares God's cursings to all those who reject the covenant. That's what every prophet in the Old Testament did. That's what we see Jesus coming to do. These two things that we saw last week is bring condemnation and salvation, or judgment and salvation, blessing and curse, as the covenant is brought to bear on God's people. This is what Jesus does. Read with me. Now, you follow in your Bible. Again, I hope that you have your Bible open in front of you so that you can uh, 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 take note of it. In, in, in the, the one that you read throughout the week, verse 12, reads like this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing 
but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to cast out uh, those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You'll recognize that from the psalm that we read for our call to worship. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he uh, believes, uh, sorry, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever that you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you for your trespasses. May God bless the reading of his inerrant word among us this morning. Amen. What an, a powerful piece of scripture that we have here before us. Jesus is in this uh, next week long in Mark, which just a warning, it's going to take us around about six months to, to uh, end out the next week in Mark's timeline. That Jesus goes into the temple, starts picking fights with the religious leaders because he is the Messiah prophesied from the scrolls that they hold. He is the rightful son and heir over the temple that they work in. He is the God they profess to worship and he's coming to prove their folly, to prove their weakness, to prove their sinfulness. Jesus comes as Malachi had foretold. The righteous one will come and when he comes, he will purify the sons of Levi. That is the priests, the religious leaders. The Messiah will come and purify them before all people. As Peter even quotes, judgment begins at the household of God. What we see, of course, we saw this, uh, this, uh, this, this uh, moment the, when Jesus is walking in. So triumphal entry was Monday, uh, sorry, was Sunday. Then they went back home and, and slept uh, in Bethany, probably in Lazarus's house, who he raised from the dead. And then they went back into the town and uh, walking along, Jesus was, was hungry because he was truly human in, uh, uh, in our flesh. And he was walking along and, and, and he looked about and he saw, as the story tells us, a fig tree that he wanted to get a fig from. Now, another uh, part of this, this verse tells us that the reason there wasn't figs is because it wasn't the season for figs. And how the Islamic theologians 
and the liberal theologians just get, 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 get ammunition for their guns here because they think this is proof that, that Jesus was not God and that Je- Jesus was even uh, a sinner. Look at how he overreacts because he just couldn't even tell the seasons. And obviously, he's not God because he doesn't know the seasons of the world he created. But that is to speak out of utter ignorance. In Israel, at, uh, in, in their day, they had, uh, they had figs that would grow, but they would grow in a certain season in which it was not when Jesus was walking around. It wasn't fig season. However, those fig trees could be told whether or not they were fruiting because about a third of them would fruit out of season a little bit early. You could tell that they were in fruit because the leaves would grow after the fruit has grown. So that if you were quite a while off, maybe 100 meters or so off, and you see a fig tree and it's barren, you have, you have no reason, if it's out of season, to believe there will be figs. But if you look and it's got leaves all over it, well, it's already gone through the fruiting season and now has the outward show of leaves. You can approach it and expect to pluck the fruit, which is what Jesus did. He'd come into a world that was out of season for spiritual fruit. He didn't come to expect the Canaanite descendants, the pagans, the Gentiles. He didn't come to expect them in fruit, but there was one tree that he himself had planted in the old covenant, that he had all the reason to expect fruit on that tree. That tree was Israel. He had come to that tree, and it had all the signs of godliness. It had a shining temple on the highest mountain in the land. It had sacrifices, it had priests, it had money uh, offerings, it had religious ceremonies, it had everything. But what Jesus shows us in his here parable, this actively lived out parable in the flesh, what Jesus shows us is that in his coming to Jerusalem, he has found nothing but an outward show of leaves. Therefore, he curses it. He says to that tree right then, cursed be you, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. This was a parable for the Jerusalem temple. And Mark sandwiches the two halves of the story about the fig tree when Jesus curses it, and then when Jesus explains it, he sandwiches those with the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. To to just show us in a literary style, these are not just randomly thrown together are parts of the story, days of, of, of Passion Week. This is Mark intentionally showing us. He cursed the fig tree. He cursed the temple. And he explained even further the next day what it was to mean. Therefore, what we see acted out in this parable with the fig tree, then we see acted out in the city of Jerusalem. So now let's go through the, the accounting of the clearing of the temple. And I'm just really sorry if you've got a picture of Jesus that is nice guy, hippie, loves everybody, is, the, is just the, 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 the apologetic, soft, woke Jesus. He just doesn't fit in Mark 11. In Mark 11, we see Jesus go, look at verse 15. First of all, we're going to look at the eviction. The owner of the land comes and evicts the tenants. Then we're going to see the, the occupation of the temple. And then we're going to see the explanation of the event. So first of all, the eviction in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold 
pigeons. Jesus walked in and he was not uh, uh, enraged in a human passion, but he had the zeal of God in his bones. He walks in. He places his hand under the money changer's table and says, please leave, and tosses it across the courtyard. The, the courtyard that he'd walked into, maybe, maybe you should just go home and Google. It's very helpful for the way you, you picture this week occurring. If you go home and Google images of Herod's temple, it will be an enormous help to you visually. Jesus walks in through these enormous four, five-story walls made out of beautiful stone, and he walks into, not, not, not a stadium, but an enormous flat area called the Gentiles' court. And this was the size of 25 rugby fields, okay, 36 acres paved out by Herod, uh, in the middle of which there was a, a raised platform which the, the temple stood behind some additional walls. Jesus walks in there, and he sees it's basically a, a, a bazaar. Okay, if you're younger, it's like a market space, right? Everybody's selling their trinkets, their animals, it smells. You've got money changes, you've got tickets for the game uh, uh, arcade. It's, a, it's, an, it's an ecker. That's what it is when Jesus walks into his temple. He sees an ecker. And Jesus starts throwing over the tables. Uh, in, in John's uh, gospel, we see that he also did this at the beginning of his ministry three years ago. They still haven't learned. And in that version, he sits for a while just talking to his disciples, plaiting a whip of leather. And when he finished it, got the boys aside and started cracking the whip to send people out. This is angry Jesus. This is not human sinful Jesus. This is God coming to his temple, purifying the place of the filth, cursing it, that it would never bear fruit. Again, one of the things that we see happening, because this is Passover, Okay, this is Passover. This is, this is one of the biggest holidays in the Jewish year, Passover. When you come and you celebrate that we were, we were freed from the Egyptians, we, we escaped uh, uh, um, uh, Pharaoh through the hand of Moses that, that God empowered. And what they would do is, you remember the Passover lamb, they would celebrate in their houses and they would come also in the week of festival giving sacrifices. Now, here's the thing. Those sacrifices that you brought to the temple, now let's just get another geographical uh, uh, headspace in. The Jews had come up to an additional 1.5 million Jewish men and their sons had come from all over the known world. They had all come and they, because they'd all been dispersed, they came and they arrived in Jerusalem and there they would give their sacrifices and they would worship for a whole week and go home very happy. Now, when you come, you have to bring sacrifices to give in the temple. But of course, you're traveling an enormous uh, distance and freight on lambs is pretty expensive. So, solution, you just choose to buy a lamb outside the temple door. That's pretty smart. Problem, the priests owned those lambs and if you're going to buy, a, it's like when you go to a tourist shop, like you can go somewhere off, off eBay and buy a $4 a huge uh, a Sydney Opera House uh, Lego piece. But if you go to the one that sold just outside the doors of the Sydney Opera House, it's $600. That's how it was. Now, you could bring your own lamb, but of course, uh, it's hard to travel with. And the sneaky little priests are the ones who actually have to approve your lamb. So they might look at it. They might nick it on the leg. And, oh, look, it's got a cut on it. I'm sorry. I can't accept this. You'll have to buy one of ours. But of course, there's a second problem. So not only are the, are the animals being charged with this enormous surplus, but also you have to pay Jewish temple money 
Okay, yes, we're, we're like the Vatican here. We've got our own little city of treasury, and you have to buy our lambs with our money. And if you brought your pagan money from the other areas you live, you have to go to the exchange table and get the Jewish money. Now, there's another problem, isn't there? Because what happens, you go to the airport, and you remember, oh, yikes, I didn't get any euros out, or I didn't get any American dollars or, or whatever, uh, and you realize you have to exchange it. You know there's about a 40% exchange rate that you're just going to miss off the top because those those pesky little people behind that annoying little booth take all your money, give you 10 cents on the dollar, right? That was happening at the, at, the, at, the, at the temple. The priests and the money changers, what Mark says, the money changers, they would take your pagan Gentile dollars and they would give you cents back in Jewish money. They were making a killing and the historical record tells us that all of the prophets were going up to the priests. Of course, of course, very profitable for the priests this time of year. Jesus walks in. He is absolutely enraged to his core. And he starts tipping those people's tables over, coins flying everywhere, animals running everywhere. Everybody is driven from the temple. And then we see from verse 16 and 17, uh, uh, in fact, down to verse 19, the occupation. Lest we think that at this moment, it's, or maybe as you've thought about this account in your head over the, in the past, you thought it was sort of a guerrilla warfare thing. Jesus goes in, gets his guys around the temple. They all turn over tables. No one knows who's doing what. And then they, then they escape and they high five on the way home like some hooligans. That's not what happened. Jesus wanted everyone to know it was him. So yes, he's turning over tables. He sends everybody else out. But look at what verse 16 tells us. He set up security sentries on all of the entries. There was only really three entries into this enormous court. It could be very easily defended. Verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He had three of his guys, probably Peter, James, and John, the annoying ones, out far, far, far away on the entries to the temple to make sure nobody could come in. And then he set up shop in his enemy's backyard, which was in fact his house, and he started to teach them. Old Testament-style expository sermons he was teaching the crowds. And Matthew's Gospel tell us all of the lame, the blind, they were being carried and coming into the temple where, where that wouldn't have been all that acceptable, these unclean people. They were brought into Jesus' presence. And now he has a crowd of the misfits listening to him systematically tear down in public slander the priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes because he is the Messiah, come to bring judgment and salvation and purify the sons of Levi. Now, it's evident that when Mark tells us that he, he says, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he's quoting Isaiah 56. But, but this is the rabbinic uh, uh, habit. When you record what a rabbi taught on, you would say that they taught on this verse, and you're to take from that, they sort of mean, by implication, the whole chapter it's from. You're just getting a taste. So when we're told he's, he's quoting Isaiah 56, I want you to picture uh, uh, Bartholomew the apostle sort of standing before him with, with Isaiah's scroll open to chapter 56, and Jesus is giving an open-air sermon. Can you go with me to Isaiah 56 that we had our our call to worship from, as we look at, at the, the, the makeup of that chapter. And it is exactly what we've been saying so far. The makeup of that chapter is blessing and salvation to anyone who receives the covenant of God, even if you're a foreigner, 
Even if you're not a Jew, come and receive the Jewish Mosaic covenant. Keep the Sabbath. Do righteously. You'll be saved. God has grace for anyone. I love that line that he says. Even if you're a, you're a eunuch, if you have been so committed to other gods' worship that you have even destroyed your body in a sense so that now as, as you come to Yahweh, you feel like, I can't be accepted. I've, I've committed myself to that pagan worship. I, I can't even come and, and have the blessing of children under this new covenant. God says, don't tell yourself that. Come. You can't have children naturally. I will give you a name better than children, a name in the household of God, in the spiritual family of the Messiah. Come. I don't care how committed you've been to your witchcraft, to your new ageism, to your Mormonism, to whatever it is that you've committed yourself to, friends. Jesus says, come without money, feast without any dollars to offer, come and receive the waters of life. That's just, that's just from that verse. I love that. Well, look at, but so verse one through eight, we heard it read for us. It's all about salvation, even for the foreigner who comes. Never tell yourself because of your past life, you can't come into the covenant of God, <laughs> especially this is foreshadowing the new covenant in Christ. I, I, I can't move on from it. I love that in the years after, uh, after uh, what Jesus is doing in the temple, you're literally going to see Gentiles and foreigners all coming into the church in Jerusalem, being baptized and filled with the Spirit. I love the triumph of the gospel, how it unifies us all. But anyway, that's, that's one, verse one through eight. Uh, uh, look at verse uh, seven. It's uh, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, verse 7 says, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Mountain here means city, and city means mountain in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll bring them to my mountain, Jerusalem, right? And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what Jesus is quoting. Verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, part of the promises to the Jews, I'll bring you back and bring you so that you're ready to receive the covenant of the Messiah. He gathers them, but verse 8 says, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. He will bring back the remnant of the Jews and God will bring in tastes and samples of every nation on the globe to Jesus. What a beautiful new covenant promise. This is what Jesus would have been preaching out of. And then you get to verse 9. And in verse 9 until the end of the chapter in verse 12, you have Jesus, uh, sorry, you have Isaiah, and Jesus would have been preaching this, condemning the selfish leaders. He calls them blind watchmen. You know what a watchman is? It's a guy who stands on the, on the city walls and tells you if an enemy, uh, 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 armies are coming, there's one thing. There's one thing you want your watchman to be able to do. Watch. You want them to have eyeballs that are functioning. They don't even need to speak. They can hit a, hit a metal thing. They don't need to be able to, able to hear other people. They just got to be able to see. And Isaiah is saying, your watchmen, the spiritual overseers, they're blind. They see nothing. He says that they're silent sheepdogs. They're meant to bark when the wolf comes. They say nothing. They're sleeping sheepdogs. They're sheep-eating sheepdogs. They're foolish shepherds, selfish shepherds, and drunk shepherds. That's what that, the rest of the chapter says. Salvation for covenant keepers, no matter who you are. Condemnation, judgment to the covenant breakers, no matter who you are. 
even if you're a spiritual leader, you break God's covenant, you will be judged. Well, Jesus started applying it all in verse 17 of Mark. So we can go back there together in chapter 11, verse 17. (coughs) Jesus starts applying it to his situation. We see then what was so angering to him when he came in is not that he's not getting a cut of the great uh, financial profits. His problem is that he sees this enormous 25 footy field size court that the Gentiles and the foreigners were supposed to be able to come into and worship God through prayer, through teaching, through, through a, a scroll explanation, through, through sacrifices. All of that was to be going on in the enormous court outside. And instead, he walked in and you could hardly hear yourself think because of the noise, let alone pray. Not only was there no prayer, no worship, no teaching of the Gentiles, there was also no Gentiles. This is the problem, that that the Jews, they had not defiled the inner temple. Oh, goodness, no, the the women could not go to the men's court, and the non-priests could not go into the, the priest's court. No, 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 we have to keep the Lord God's covenant holy. But the point of our existence, which is the mission of God to the world, and that can sort of go down the side, and we'll make a buck off it. Jesus was enraged. He says that you have made it a den of robbers. He's literally looking at the leaders. He's saying to the crowds, the leaders are thieving you. Wake up. Don't you realize you're being conned? Don't you realize they are fooling you? They've pulled the wool over your eyes. They are sheep that sound suspiciously like wolves. Don't you think, guys? He, he, uh, he publicly shows them that the emperor has no clothes on. Isaiah 56 verse 11 says, His watchmen are blind. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They all turn to their own gain. And that makes a lot of sense as to why verse 18 and 19 tell us that the priests, wherever they were hiding, I love that they got cast out, but they were close enough to hear Jesus. They just couldn't keep themselves away. Hiding around the corners, putting a little shofar horn around the corner to try and hear as much as they could. What's he saying? Repeating it to each other. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. They could feel the burn on their own skin as they, the sons of Levi, were being purified. They could see themselves on the conveyor belt going towards the kiln. The the heat was going to be turned up. They knew they were guilty. They feared him. The crowd of priests. They had their own army, by the way, and they feared this man with the scroll of God in his hand. They feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were infuriated by the fact that they listened to him. Not only are they losing their money because old Jesus has come in and flipped their tables, they're losing their money and they're losing their reputation, which is the real power. They couldn't handle it. They started seeking a way to destroy him. And we see here that there is an application, a similarity between what just happened in the temple and what happened on the way to the temple. The temple and the fig tree are very common, are very similar. And we see that what Jesus is showing them is that 
Jerusalem, like the fig tree, had lots of leaves, lots of ceremony, lots of traditions of the elders, but no spiritual fruit. The coming week of Mark is going to be Jesus cursing that blasphemous, idolatrous, unfaithful, selfish leadership and giving promises to the meek, giving promises to the faithful of covenant salvation. We will see this over the next six months as we work through Mark chapter 11 through 15. But this bears a warning to each and every single one of us today, especially those who sit in church, especially the ones who keep up our, our attendance regularly, that if we would be those who have a very impressive library, a very impressive post history on social media, very impressive attendance record at church, a a very impressive outward display to everybody else of our own spirituality, our our religious obedience, our ceremony. You know, we we don't do what that cultural taboo thing. You know, I've never worn shorts that uh, go up past my knee. I'm just as righteous as one could be. We, we make all of these additional laws on top of ourselves and we obey them all to prove God and others that we are righteous. And yet, if there is no true spiritual life, which brings about strength and victory against sin, and a joyful overflow of our salvation through evangelism, there is no true spiritual life, no holiness, no obedience, no prayer, no hungering and devouring the word of God. If those things are lacking, Jesus would look at us. We ought to look at ourselves and see the dire state we are in. Outward show, leaves, will not replace are no alternative to genuine spiritual fruit. John Gill, a biblical commentator, he says, those people who do not have true obedience, only an outward show, he says, at the last day, they will be cast out like dry wood, like a withered branch into everlasting burnings, being fit fuel for them. God does not want you to to work up in your own heart or before others or before him goodness or deeds or religious acts, the only thing he requires of you is the faith that leans on Jesus. As sinful as you are, as we just heard in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, as as righteous as you are, you'll always have enough sin to get you down if you rely on it to get you to heaven. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he who is the mountain of righteousness has a cave in him that you are hidden in. And if you have faith, regardless of the sin that you have, you are untouchable by the condemnation of the law. You are untouchable by the accusations of the devil, though he heaps them up. You're untouchable by the, by the, by the accusations of other people that want to tear you down. If you are hid with Christ, then your life is secure in heaven. The call of Jesus is to reject the unbiblical, ungodly, outward shows of religion, and lean on Jesus Christ alone. All outward displays without true faith, without the Spirit in us, bearing fruit is hypocrisy. It is the very definition of hypocrisy. God does not take it lightly. This is what we should learn from what we're seeing Jesus do in Jerusalem. God does not take it lightly when people profess to be in his covenant, but 
fail to obey his commands. He does not take it lightly. He did not let the world go on for endless ages with Jerusalem thriving in their rebellion. He put on public display his condemnation of that kind of thing so that we can learn, we may repent. Do not let this falsehood be you. And we see a further explanation through another layer of parable, which if we're not careful, can just become all the more confusing. Look with me to verse 20. So this has been the message so far, judgment, salvation. Judging the proud, the selfish, salvation for the faithful and the repentant. As they pass by in the morning, verse 20 says, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is the only destructive miracle that Jesus does. All the others are healing, upbuilding, uplifting. This one was destructive. The only one. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Isn't it strange that after Jesus gets so angry at the falsely religious, then he starts a a name it and claim it sermon. And apparently that's what this is. He's, He's schizophrenic, it would seem, that he's angry at the religious and then he's about wanting money and the rest. And then he comes out and he says, guys, I want you to name and claim and declare and expect whatever you want from God as long as you have faith. God will answer your demands. Like a genie in a bottle, it's all very, very convenient. Or at least that's what we would think if we listen to most common day preachers when they get to this text. It's as if they sort of sever what just happened in the last two stories, and in fact, the whole book of the Bible, chop that out and just go, Jesus just has a random teaching moment. Mark puts it in a randomized spot. He sort of, he was flipping pages. He put it down and he goes, that's where I'll put that story. This is in context. We have to read the Bible biblically and in context. So let's start looking at what Jesus actually meant and why it only further applies what we've already seen. What happens is that this is, this throwing of the mountain into the sea is a further sign of judgment. The fig tree was a sign of Judge Jerusalem, that it would soon be destroyed and Jesus is going to foretell the destruction of Jerusalem in the coming week. But we're not there yet. What we're seeing foreshadowed is that the Jewish only kingdom, the ethnically sons of Abraham kingdom, with the law written on external tablets of stone, did not bear the fruit that God demanded. So what God is now doing in the new covenant is making a kingdom of Jews and Gentiles with the law written on the new heart that he gives his people, that being mediated by the Messiah, is a truer and a better covenant, and it will bring about the fruit that God demands. That's sort of the long scope here. It is not here a sermon on the faith that you can accomplish whatever you want. Let's look then. So so when Jesus says mountain, why does he start using this language? See, uh, like we saw in Isaiah 56 already, right? This This is how the Old Testament speaks of powerful cities. It speaks of the mountains that they were built on. Most, most ancient powerful cities were built into or onto the mountains in a fortified way. It was great for defense, great for military campaigns. 
The Bible in, in Jeremiah 51 speaks to this, this, uh, this pagan city or nation, but it's speaking directly to the city, and interchangeably in that chapter, God will call it the mountain or the city. They're, they're interchangeable. They're one and the same. We see the same thing happen with God speaking about Jerusalem, which was on Mount Zion. He speaks of his city and his hill interchangeably. They mean the same thing. If you go onto that hill, you know which city you're going to. He speaks of them interchangeably in Psalm 2, Psalm 48, Isaiah 66, Joel 3. It is a common Old Testament way of speaking. So Jesus, when he says this mountain, he's not just saying dream up a mountain and pray that it gets removed. He's saying this mountain, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, all that it represents, it will be cast into the sea if you pray so. But what does he mean about being cast into the sea? We also see that scripturally being cast into the sea, is, it's a sign of God's judgment. Just like somebody being thrown into the sea is overwhelmed, covered, there's no hope there. It's, it's, a, it's total destruction and, and uh, baptism in the Greek. It is to be buried. That's a sign that God uses of judgment. So we see even one of the common phrases as the Jew at Passover looks back on the defeat of Pharaoh and his armies, the common phrase they would use, the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, they say, Egypt, Pharaoh, his horses and their rider were thrown into the sea. Even though technically that's not true because it swallowed them up, they're already standing on the dry seabed, but the, literal, uh, the literary usage of the words is they were thrown into the sea. That is, they were totally judged, drowned in God's judgment. Who else do you know in the Old Testament who was fleeing from God and was thrown into the sea, little old Jonah. Being thrown into the sea is what Jesus said just a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 9. If you are a person who is tempting the children of God, bringing sin into the church, that he says it's better for you to have a rock around your neck and thrown into the sea. In Revelation, we see the same thing, that, that it is something where, where, where something in heaven is gathered up thrown into earth, plunged into the sea, as it were, to start a tidal wave of God's judgment. Thrown into the sea is a pattern, scripturally speaking, of talking of God's judgment. In fact, in Revelation 18, we see a fulfillment in my understanding of exactly this parable. Where Revelation 18 shows us that the prayers of God's people are, are, are built up in this... Sorry, this is Revelation 8, and then we'll go to Revelation, Revelation 18... Uh, in Revelation 8, we see that the prayers of God's people are kept in a, in a huge incense bowl and are then poured out onto the world so that judgment then comes against their persecutors. In Revelation 18, we see that the mountain of Babylon, which is in, in Revelation is a picture of the adulterous Jerusalem, is thrown into the sea because of the people's prayers against it. That is what Jesus, in my estimation, is talking about here. Here's what he's saying, in, in short. He's saying, you're impressed with my casting out people from the temple, disciples. You're very impressed with my cursing of the fig tree. What I'm saying to you is this. If Jerusalem is judged by God, when it starts to persecute you, which he's about to foretell in chapter 13, when it starts to persecute you, you may pray against it and God will use your prayers to bring it down. Exactly what I believe we see happen in Revelation. If you pray against your persecutor with faith, Jesus says, with faith, if you know God's purposes, God's will, 
God's plan going forward, and you pray to that end, God will topple governments and superpowers and nations and armies for the sake of his church, which he said he would build without stopping. Jesus is here saying, pray with faith towards the proclamation, expanding of the kingdom and the gospel of God. Pray that my new covenant people will be established and those who are persecuting will be thrown down and it will happen. Verse 25, that is why he says, he then gives an, an additional warning. Look at verse 25. There's two requirements to this kind of faith that topples superpowers for the sake of the uh, uh, expanding of the kingdom of God. But we we don't take ground through warfare. We don't take ground through riots. We don't take ground through politicians. We take ground on our knees as we pray to God in his throne room. But while the first prerequisite is faith. You have to pray believing in God's purposes that are cosmic, right? And of course you do. He's speaking to 12 dudes. One of them is about to get him killed. And he's saying to them, everything's going to be moved out as the kingdom of God is renewed and brought onto it. He's giving these cosmic, amazing, messianic promises. And he has to tell the men in front of him, you've got to believe. Don't look around you, even today, Hope Church, don't look around us and think, surely this is as much as can be saved. Surely this is as holy as I can get. As powerful as God's witness on earth can be, surely this is as much good as could ever happen because look at what is around us. Have faith in God. He will accomplish his purposes. Whatever it is, whatever nation he wants to rise or fall, however fast he wants his church to expand or be purified, he will do it. We must have faith in God. Faith, and then secondly, verse 25 tells us, whatever you ask in prayer, sorry, verse 25 Whenever you stand praying, that's just a Jewish uh, position to be praying in, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What he's saying is, if you're going to stand up and pretend to represent God and pray down his judgment onto his enemies, make sure that you are not yourself acting like an enemy of God. Saying in Jesus' name at the end doesn't mean you don't have to be a non-hypocrite to be heard by God. And this, of course, is the exact sin of the Jews of Jesus' day. God, come save the world from the unrighteous, who, of course, is everyone but us. How fast we will fall into the same trap of those Jews condemned by Jesus if we pray for an expansion of the kingdom, a toppling of enemies, crying out because we're victims of tyrannical government, which may be true, but we do not look inward to repent of our own sin, to forgive other people that we despise so that we are not caught in the gall of bitterness. Yes, the king. I just love how Jesus talks of this cosmic occurrence of the kingdom coming and the, the powerful signs, and yet you do not neglect personal holiness and the forgiving of your brothers when you come in prayer. Do not keep gossiping the back of your mind against your sister when you come in prayer. Come forgiving, come with faith, and God will use your prayers to establish his kingdom. There is the word out of of these today. I'm, I'm sorry you can't just declare and name and claim a car. That's not the message I have to bring this morning. But Christians, there it is. Jesus brought judgment and salvation to the covenant breakers and the covenant doers. We must have faith and therefore be found in Christ's covenant. Let's just bring it all the way back 
simplified, not because we're, we're foolish, but because you may not be filled in with all of these biblical nomenclatures, non-Christians, unbelievers. If you're not yet a believer, not yet a Christian, not yet filled with his spirit, living in obedience to his command, Jesus has established a promised covenant with you. He says, if you walk away from your sin, Yet, you don't have to make any changes right now for it to occur, but, but if you decide in your heart, I'm done with my sin, if you decide in your heart right now that you will rely on Christ instead of your own good deeds to get you to heaven, if you decide right now that you will bend your knee to the lordship of Jesus, who is clearly God, and give up the ruling of your own life, if you will do that right now, Jesus will make you a member of his kingdom. He will give to you eternal life full forgiveness, free adoption into his family. You will be in him, he says, so that as long as he lives, you will live. As long as he is loved by the Father, you will be loved by the Father. Do not let the foreigner, the sinner, the non-Christian, the ex-sinner, whatever you've done in your life, do not let that person say, I cannot come and be joined to the Lord. Yes, you, no matter what you've done in your past, God will give you a name that is better than a religious upbringing. He will give you a name in the family of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have spoken in so many ways in the lead up to, to the coming of Jesus, that you have promised, you had prophesied, you had covenanted, you had foreshadowed, you did all of these amazing things so that Jesus' arrival would be the culmination of the ages. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring those prophets. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the apostles to write down what Jesus said. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here now to minister this word into our hearts. And Lord Jesus Christ, we we thank you. We thank you that you came willingly into our world. We thank you you that you proclaimed boldly what the Father had put in your heart to say. We thank you that you fulfilled all of the shadows, all of the prophecies, all of the types that were pointing to you. Thank you for going in faithfulness to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our our punishment on your shoulders. Thank you for taking our cursedness, our wretchedness into your account. Thank you for being estranged in that moment from the Father on the cross. Thank you for being crushed for our iniquities. Thank you for carrying our sin, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Holy Spirit, Father God, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that in this moment you would give new hearts to those who do not yet believe this amazing, eternally joyful message of salvation. Please, Lord, give to them hearts to believe. Give to them assurance that Jesus can save even them. Give to us assurance that you will keep them to the end. Lord Jesus Christ, please give people faith this morning by your Spirit. Father God, preserve us. Give us a zeal for the house of God. Give us a zeal for the mission of God and Holy Spirit. Give us a zeal for repentance and and seeking holiness in our own hearts and lives. Father God, we thank you for all that you've done and said in our midst this morning. And everybody said, Amen.